from America's beginning to her present, every negative unjust public policy had what I call a DM on the DL, a death measurement on the down low. They're not just bad policies. They're policies that produce so much death in secret. Then COVID hits. We have not had one ritual of remembrance. We are witnessing America as a failed social experiment. How do we tell this story in a way that builds the kind of emotional momentum that colorblind ideology builds? So many young brothers and sisters of the younger generation find themselves so far removed from the best of their past. What are we going to make out of the nothing we've been given? How do you envision possibility? Hey everyone, thanks for joining us on The Tightrope, where we love to have a serious and love-infused, justice-valued conversation on very tough issues, but we do it with the best of spirit and, and with incredible guests. And my co-host, Dr. Cornell West, is with us as usual. Hi there, Dr. West. How are you? It is always a blessing to be in conversation with you. Yes, and we have quality, quality folk here today for sure. Oh, we have yeah. Dr. Reverend Barber with us, and we're going to have a fantastic conversation. I'm going to turn it over to Dr. West immediately because I know he's got all kinds of things he wants to ask the amazing Dr. Barber, especially about the poor people's movement and about the Moral Monday campaign and the political situation in North Carolina, Washington, D.C., and all over. So Dr. West, take it away. Well, I just say that we are starting on the highest possible spiritual and moral and intellectual note we possibly can, because the brother who we are going to be in dialogue with He's not only the closest thing to Martin Luther King Jr., Martin Luther King Jr. is the deepest spirit, heart, mind, and soul coming out of the great tradition of Black prophetic church produced by the American empire. But my dear brother, Reverend Dr. William J., and that J stands for Joseph, I just found out, Barbara II. He has his own distinctive style and substance, his own distinctive way of building on the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. Now, we've, many of us have known this for a long time. Now the whole world takes notice in terms of mm -hmm. his analysis, his vision, his courage, his determination, his humor, and he's true to his calling. And his calling is that of a Christian committed to the least of these, bringing people together from every race, gender, sexual orientation, region, and national identity. And he does it with a sense of humility. That's a very rare thing mm. in the history of any nation, of any civilization. So I could go on and on. I was in dialogue with uh, our dear brother William Lamar IV just the other day, and I said, I don't know what, what Duke University has, but they producing some quality folk in that Duke University. Mm. But our dear brother, William J. Barber II, he's North Carolina Central and Duke University and Duke University PhD. Brother Barber, you know it's always a joy to be in conversation with you. And what a moment we are wrestling with in terms of the crisis of American democracy, the crisis of the American empire, and the invisibility too often 
of precious poor and working people of all colors. Give us a little sense of how you understand this historical moment, my brother. Thank you. You know, you are a scholar, intellect, activist, icon to many of us. And I was reading you and knew you before I had the chance to meet you. I've shared with you that prophesied deliverance turned me in a new way, in a real sense. Uh, that opening line about the humanity of Black people being a recent consideration, and then the prophetic words of that book and, and many since then. So let me just first of all, thank you. You know, we really are in a moment where hope is on a tightrope. Last night, we just had a election in Georgia where the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, Reverend Raphael Warnack, was elected to the United States Senate. And looks like John Ossoff, a Jewish brother, white Jewish brother was elected to the United States Senate in the deep South, in a state that also voted for President Biden, elect Biden over President Trump. Now we saw beginnings of this in 2008 when North Carolina voted for Barack Obama in 2008. Now I'm talking not about policy now, but the electoral makeup where black and white and brown folk came together in the deep South and voted in a way they hadn't done for years. And I think it was South Carolina that actually brought him over in terms of the primaries. Now, I've been listening though, Dr. West, at some of the commentary and I think it's too shallow because they keep saying, well, this is so strange. And I said, don't you know the history of the reconstruction in America? Uh, they, they said, well, well, this is the first. I said, wait a minute now. Don't forget Henry McNeil Turner. <laughs> don't, 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 don't forget the original 33 of the reconstruction moment between 1868 and 1877, 1880. What we saw happen uh, last night is more like Martin Luther King and Clarence Jordan. It's more like Sojourner Truth and Lucretia Mott, the white Quaker and the black former slave. And that's a history that we often don't reach into, but it could be so informative in this moment because it's fusion politics. Now we have that happen the night before we did this podcast. Today, as we're doing this podcast, I just heard Ted Cruz argue on the floor of the United States Senate to go back to a 1877 president. Now he got it wrong because he's saying he wants a commission to look at the election. Well, in 1877, there were two sets of electors sent from certain states. But think about what he's arguing for. He's arguing to go back to the moment that ended Reconstruction. While last night we had a moment that may be the continuation of a third Reconstruction. And commentaries don't, are not getting this. They're not right. getting it. See, see, before in the 1800s, you know, 1868, 1865, you began the reconstruction right after the Civil War. In 1872, you had the beginning of the Klan, Klan, first designed to attack white people that were working with black people. You had this coalition of black and white people come together and elect either majority black state legislators or at least reconstruction moral fusion legislators made up of black and whites who came together to reconstruct the society. And then in 1876, you have a candidate that got elected like Trump, lost the popular vote, 
but convinces folk to give him the Electoral College with a promise that he would undo all of the Reconstruction laws. But that took, that took Dr. West, what, uh, 65 to 12 years. We have a vote last night that looks more like Reconstruction in 1860s. Mm. And then we turn around this morning and we got folk in the street in the United States Senator arguing for us to go back to a tactic that was used in 1877 to dismantle Reconstruction. We are in a serious and critical moment that is gonna require more than superficial analysis about what happened. This is more than just about Trump going down there and suppressing votes. <laughs> this is right. more than just about suburbia. You know, we found out, lastly, I will tell you, we found out in the, in the general election, you know that 14, uh, that people making less than $50,000, watch this, I didn't say black, People making less than $50,000 a year voted 14% higher for Biden and for Kamala. You know, Reverend Barber, before you move on to that and this brilliant analysis, I just wanted to say that some breaking news right now is that these same protesters on behalf of Trump have stormed the Capitol building, which is now on lockdown. And yeah. this follows your whole argument, right? Which is the kind of aggressive retreat and reverberations that we're going to see. Right, and it's deeper than Trump. See, that's, that's the thing that Nell Painter was trying to tell us out of Princeton. She said, Trump is simply the iconography of a too often repeated American reality. This is a serious culture conscious reconstruction battle going on. Right. They see the numbers, they see the demographic because reconstruction is never just about a new deal. It's about being able to put new people in power positions, many times that come from those who have been depressed and oppressed, who then elect people who then can fight for them in the halls of power. These folk understand that they're on the end of Republican control. And there is a rising possibility for progressives. There's a rising possibility for prophetic public policy. We did a study just this past year with Columbia University that showed in 15 states, and Georgia's one of them, Michigan's one of them, Ohio, Texas, North Carolina, if poor and low wealth people just vote 25% higher, and some of the states is less than 10%, Michigan is just 1%, but no, no, none of these states we looked at were more than 25% higher than they voted in 2016 poor and low wealth people can determine who sits in the Senate and who sits in the, the White House. Mm -hmm. That is scary to the empire because an Ooh. empire always expects revolution. You know, I'm, I'm preaching about John the Baptist this coming Sunday. You know, Herod killed babies trying to stop Jesus. His son decided to cut John's head off. Why? Because Oppressors always know eventually <laughs> there's going to be revolution. Now, what we see here is these people have been riled up, lied to. You know, Trump knows exactly what he's doing, but it's not just him. It's Ted Cruz. It's all of them. It's, it's McConnell. It's even the ones that are today not going with undoing the Electoral College of Count. But, but they stood up today and said, but we voted for Trump. What are they voting for? They're voting for trying to hold on to the Southern strategy, trying to hold on to Reaganomics, and they see it le leaving. 
they see a whole system that was designed when Kevin Phillips and Pat Buchanan went into Richard Nixon and said, we know how you can win and how we can control this country for the next 50 years. This was 1967, 68. They said, all you have to do is engage in positive polarization. Divide the country intentionally. We will get the better half, particularly in the South. We'll control the 13 former Confederate states, which will guarantee us before a vote is counted, 170 electoral college votes, 26 members of the United States Senate, and 31% of the United States House, right off the bat. But in order to do it, we have to create a great illusion. And Dr. King said in 65, at the end of the Selma to Montgomery, I think Dr. West, his greatest sermon, really, we don't talk about it like that, but he says, he, he's standing on the steps of the Alabama State House, and he said, let me tell you why, I'm paraphrasing, why people are so against this Voting Rights Act. And he goes back to the 1800s and he starts talking about the aristocracy. And he said the segregated society was created every time there was a threat of the Negro masses and the white masses joining together, particularly poor and low wealth and former slaves joining together to create the beloved community and a new political reality. It is at that point that the aristocracy the bourbon class always sows division. That was his wisdom in 18, oh, 1865. Yes. No, and that, that's so much a part of his moral and spiritual and intellectual greatness. Because when we, when we zero in on who this contemporary aristocracy really is, mm -hmm. so that when we think of the we at the top, when you think of the economic elites, Wall Street, you think of the military elite so that the their connection to those economic elites, so that you got Wall Street greed, you got Pentagon militarism that's tied to war profiteering, mm -hmm. that's trying to orchestrate a positive division that's that right. make people want to hold on to their white supremacist identities, even their regional identities, mm -hmm. their xenophobic versions of their religious identities. And yet here comes Martin following Jesus into the temple, running the money changes out. That's exactly right. And when you look at today, how again, you and I have often talked about this, you cannot reduce a race critique to just an economic critique. That's but right. you must understand that the racism, take for instance, just let me give you a quick analysis. Take for instance, racist voter suppression. Now we know that since 2010, before Donald Trump ever won, ran, there have been at least 26 states that passed racist voter suppression laws. And if you put that up on a map and then overlay that map with the states that have the highest levels of poverty in the country, they're the same states and the states that have blocked living wages votes, they're the same states. Even in states where 70% of the folk want a living wage, the states that have blocked healthcare, the states that have the highest attack on immigrant brothers, Latino brothers and sisters, and, and have bad police laws and criminal justice laws. And if you look at the people who benefit from racist voter suppression laws, they use race to get elected, but once they get elected, they favor the corporations. 
They favor the money. They favor the military. And interestingly enough, white people become the collateral damage of the people that use race to get elected. So they get elected through racism, but once they get elected, they pass policies that in raw numbers hurts more white people, raw numbers, not in percentage, in raw numbers right. than black people because of the 140 million pre-COVID poor and low wealth people in this country. 66 million are white, 26 million are black. Now that 26 million black is 61% of black folk. It's only 30% of white folk, but in raw numbers, Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? And, oh. so, and so, so they use race. I did this one time. I was in Appalachia. I was up in Appalachia in Kentucky, Eastern Kentucky, Harlan County, where Lyndon Baines Johnson went to announce the uh, war on poverty. We back in the woods, Cornell. I'm told, don't go back there. It's dangerous. So, so we said, look, I, my father pastored in Kentucky. We went back there, we met with black and white coal miners. They told us the real deal on McConnell and how he allowed these multinational companies to take over the coal mine, but they didn't grandfather their union rights and their benefits in. Then we met with about 400 people, middle of the day, Harlan County. And I, we put those maps up. I showed the, the vote, vote, racist voter suppression in Kentucky. And then I showed, I put another map up on poverty and then showed all the politicians in Kentucky that benefited from racist voter suppression, but also voted, you know, policies that would hurt the poor and working poor and low wealth people, so forth. And one guy stood up and said, show me that map, damn map again. I said, he said, well, we're being played against each other. I said, yeah. And I said, well, why do people back here vote for, you know, these Republicans? He said, well, a lot of folks just don't vote at all because Democrats nor Republicans come back here. He said, no Democrat has really been back here since Lyndon Bain Johnson came back here. He said, there's a whole lot of us in these hills, McCaws and Hatfields, that if there was a movement about poor and low wealth folk, and we're organizing, and, and in, in last, in 2018, we organized in five so-called Reds counties in Kentucky, and three of them turned and voted for the new governor, but the new governor picked up the language of the movement. We never endorsed him, but he started talking about living wages and talking about restoring health care. And, and the first thing he did, uh, Dr. West, was felony disenfranchisement, changing it. Because a lot of my mountain brothers and sisters in Appalachia get treated like dogs too when it comes to policing. So my, my point is you are exactly right when you make these connections. And what I want folk to understand Take for instance, now in the election in Georgia, I'm not suggesting that John or my dear friend, Reverend Warnett, went as far as our agenda is. We can talk about that in a minute, what the Poor People's Campaign did. But they did openly in the South choose at least not to run as Republican light. They at least chose to say, elect us, we're gonna pass $15 and a union in a non-union state. That's that's huge step. That's a good step. They did at least say we need health care for everybody. And they did at least say we need to address systemic racism. Yes, police brutality, but also voter suppression. And in Georgia, 48% of Georgians are poor and low wealth. There are 1.9 million that make less than a living wage and 1 million uninsured. Hmm. That's the place. That's the only place. And America's going to have to understand 
as much as this, re this is being fought, the Democrats better step all the way in and stop allowing people to call progressive and prophetic policies radical. And if they are radical, ain't nothing wrong with radical love and radical justice, particularly when you've had radical racism and radical oppression. <laughs> right. That's true. I know you want to jump right in, my dear sister. This is this. Yeah. No, it's so rich. It's so it's rich. So rich. I, have, I have two two thoughts. Uh, one goes back, Reverend Barber, to your initial reference to Reconstruction, which was followed by vicious backlash in terms of the vagrancy laws, the black codes, and so on, and a complete control. So my first question is, do you think that we, we should be expecting that, even though, of course, we're coming out of what is already a backlash, but do you think that we should expect that in the near future again, or are things different? And you can take either one of these. I've got 30 questions, but let me just give you two. The second one is, you know, this really interesting focus in your comments on rural America, which is largely understood as red country, right? But the important organizing that's going around across race for poor people around uh, the country as being a very important part of the new sort of progressive movement to understand that people, once they have information, are beginning to see, you know, as you described in your, in your example, that they're being played against one another. Can you speak to the role of rural organizing for the Democratic Party or for a third party, right, for, for political mobilization more broadly and what you think the possibilities are there? On the first one, let me be, say what my grandma would say when somebody would ask her about something and thought she didn't know what was going to happen. She said, I was born at night, but not last night. <laughs> Only somebody that was born last night would not expect a backlash. Right. And it's not backlash that's going to happen. It's backlash that's happening right now. Yeah. That's what we're seeing today in the Capitol. That's what we're right. seeing in Trump. That's what we're seeing in all these lawsuits. It's backlash. And that's what we're saying about people storming the Capitol. That's why we have to be careful. I was watching people uh, extolling the Secretary of State in Georgia and the governor in Georgia and the CEO of elections in Georgia. And I said, wait a minute now. Wait, slow down a little bit. <laughs> Pump your brakes. Slow down just a little bit. That's a teeny bit. <laughs> now, you don't extol folk for doing their job. Well. The Bible, the Bible called that reasonable service. That You don't get anything extra. And you don't call folk courageous for doing the right thing without pressure. I mean, they, the pressure they have ain't, has nothing, is nothing like the pressure black folk and poor folk live with every day. And you don't extol people who on the one hand got caught and are saying there was no fraud because it makes them look bad if it was fraud. But on the other hand, they already have plans in this upcoming legislature to suppress the vote. The same people that are, people are overly applauding in the media were the ones that stole the election from us, Stacey Abrams, right? Mm -hmm. So let's be careful now. That's let's a very important point. Very yeah, let's be careful. Hit me. It hit me, you know, and I hear Brother Mitch McConnell stand there on the floor of the Senate and say, you cannot, we cannot have a self-government unless we have a commitment to truth. Oh, God. I said to myself, Lord have mercy. Lord have mercy. Lord, Lord have he's mercy. He's the same one that said to his donors, we have him on tape, where he said to his donors, you make sure 
I'm the majority leader, regardless of who the president is, because I'm the grim reaper. And none of these bills, and he said, health care, wages, will make it out of my desk drawer. He has Ooh. not changed. This is the man that's before Ruth Bader Ginsburg's body was cold. When he just heard she had died, picked up the phone and called Donald Trump, said, this is who you will nominate. This is who we will push through. Now, there's an old story about the fox that told the gingerbread man to get on his tail. I'll carry you across the water. <laughs> and then we got deeper. He said, get on my back. And it got deeper. He said, get on my nose. And then he threw the gingerbread up. He said, I thought you said you weren't going to eat me. He said, but I never told you I wasn't a fox. <laughs> <laughs> that's not that's, oh, that's real. Brother Mitch went on to say, our democracy was, will go down a death spiral if every two or four years we are only involved in a scramble for power rather than being committed to some common good. And you say, brother, you are exhibition A right. of right. pushing us down that death spiral. Then Brother Schumer gets up and says, what? That it's what matters more than anything else is democracy, that we were going to lose our democracy. And oftentimes, even in Schumer's case, it's sure. the money that dictates more than the commitment to democracy. So you say mm. to yourself, there's a legitimacy crisis that cuts so deep right. in both parties, even though parties are different. People are wondering, do we even have the institutional capacity to render any powerful elites accountable? Right now, you already have so-called centrists. They were started when Biden and, and Harris got elected, saying we got to move to the center. And I want to know what is a centrist when, if the, if the Constitution says you are to establish justice, the centrism means what well, do it for 50% of the people. Uh, mm. if, the, if, if the Constitution, <laughs> you know. <laughs> that would still be an improvement. <laughs> Right, and that would be an improvement. But what, in the, what are you talking about? There's, I think all this language, left, right, conservative, liberal, is too puny. You know, what I, we need to talk about an agenda rooted in our deepest religious and moral values and the values of the Constitution that were good. You know, Thurgood Marshall said one of the best things about our Constitution is that it could be amended. And so if you, and Dr. King said this, you, since you put it on paper, we're going to hold you to it. So really, when you talk about keeping a nation out of death and domestic turmoil, the Constitution says, ain't but one way to do that, establish justice. That's what it said. Then, Absolutely. See, the ensuring domestic, it says, establish, to ensure domestic tranquility, establish justice, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare. So you can't ensure domestic tranquility without those other three. Now the mm -hmm. question becomes, how does it, we need to use that as a guideline? And then of course our deepest religious values are love, truth, and justice. Now you said death. I preached a sermon at the National Cathedral uh, this past year when we were planning on having a mass poor people's assembly moral march on Washington. June 20th of this past year, you would have been there. We were, were inviting you. Oh yeah, well, I, planned to, I planned to be there if it wasn't for that. Uh, That's right, for line. COVID. And we're gonna do it again. We had 2.7 million people show up online. Mm. But the Sunday before, I preached at the National Cathedral a sermon entitled, America Must Decide That Death Is No Longer An Option. 
So all these folk now that want to talk about the death of the democracy, I say, let's have that death conversation. King tried to get us to hear that last sermon he was going to preach. America may very well go to hell. He talked about any nation that is so committed to the military industrial complex is on a spiral toward death. Let's talk about death for a minute. If we want to talk about death and what we better deal with. In America right now, before COVID, we had 140 million poor and low wealth people in this country. That's 43% of the nation, Cornell. 43. Since May, 8 million more have been added. We will, in the soon in the midst of COVID, be at 50% plus of this nation being poor and low wealth. You can't survive like that in mm -hmm. a country where all this wealth is around people and yet you have that level of inconsistency and poverty. Before COVID, we had 250,000 people dying every year from poverty. 700 people a day, seven people died from vaping. We had a, a White House conference and a congressional hearing. 700 people dying from poverty and not a word from either party. The party, that's what I'm exactly right. We had, right. we had, we have, you know, the, when you talk about racism, we, when we talk about the poor people's campaign, we talk about what's happening with black folk, what's happening with Latinos, the immigrants, people of color, immigrants. we talk about the indigenous people and how they are continuing to die. Right now, as we talk, multinational companies, before John McCain died, he wrote a rider in a bill to allow a multinational company to take the Apaches Jerusalem, the Apaches Mount Sinai, the, the Apaches Mecca is Oak Flats in Arizona. Right now, they're in a battle for that. Right now, my brother Winslow is on top of that mountain willing to put his life on the line. Before COVID, I'm deliberately saying this about before COVID, I want to make a point. We had 4 million families that got up every morning could buy unleaded gas and couldn't buy unleaded water. Before COVID, there are 87 million people without health care or either underinsured. Before COVID, we were spending nearly $800 billion a year, $700 billion plus billion dollars a year on the war economy. Most of it going to corporate war, war manufacturers. 54 cents of every discretionary dollar going to the war economy and less than 16 cents going to healthcare wages and infrastructure and education. You cannot survive as a nation. It's too many inconsistencies, too much death. And every one of those policies, when I was preaching, I pointed out that from America's beginning to her present, every negative unjust public policy had what I call a DM on the DL, a death measurement on the down low. They're not just bad policies. There are policies that produce so much death in secret. Then COVID hits and the fissures of racial disparity and poverty, along with the inept criminal human negligence response of the Trump administration has allowed this pandemic to take a hold. And now we're talking about some 300,000 people dead, 21 million people infected. And Cornell and my dear sister, we have not had one ritual of remembrance right. about this. You cannot, that's a kind of death when you can't even stop for a moment 
and acknowledge the death, wrong for death. Columbia said 60% of the folk didn't even have to die. The wrong for death, the policy, yeah, I'm gonna say it, murder of so many people that's coming because of COVID, because of poverty, because of denial of healthcare, because of, of, of ecological devastation, because of the, the commitment to the military industrial complex. So if we wanna have a conversation about death and life, then let's have it. But McConnell, you can't get on the floor and simply say it's only about elections. It's about what we're electing not to do that's killing this society. Thanks so much, everyone, for being us with us again on the tightrope. We had a fantastic time with Reverend Barber, and we want to remind you that we are hoping you'll join us on various social media channels and follow us and share and let us know what you think. And also, we want to encourage you to visit patreon.com, where we have a tightrope uh, account and where we're hoping you'll join us and, and be part of our Patreon community. So visit patreon.com backslash tightrope pod. And we really look forward to seeing you again next time. Take good care. Salute you, my dear sister. Thank Fish you, Cornell. Good to see you. <laughs>